Welcome to the Maluli Asset Management Podcast. This is episode number 252. Your trusty hosts are back in the saddle, Brendan Maluli and myself, Tom Maluli. Brendan, welcome to another episode. Yeah, back at it again. Got some good topics to talk about this week. So there was an article that you and I both read in Market Watch a day or two ago talking about how skilled managers, there's always that story that uh, money managers can't beat the indices, so why bother trying? Interesting study where they kind of pulled this data from. I think they kind of twisted the information. Yeah, uh, and and I didn't really care for the title, but I can't put that on the uh, author, as we've said before. So investors widely held beliefs that ETFs and index funds may may uh, may be wrong. So some good clickbait headline work going on there because yeah. it got both of us to read it. Right. Definitely. Uh, and the picture they had was like some lady who presumably had just discovered her index fund may not be all she thought it was and was like screaming or something, which is <laughs> anyway, they, they, they looked at this data. It was uh, across 2000 mutual fund trades from 1998 to 2015. They took the approach of separating it into trades that mutual fund managers made because uh, because of inflows or outflows into their fund versus, I guess, because they liked or disliked a certain stock. The academic article that they referred to, I don't think that the way it was written was necessarily uh, the way that it was quoted in, in the article. It was more talking about these trades that occurred and specifically around earnings releases for the stocks uh, that, that these funds owned. And the author of this article kind of presented it more as like general information about mutual funds, like overall. And and I'm I not. Don't, I'm, I I we both agree. I don't know how he made the leap from a post that was written by a couple of professors. Yeah, it was an academic article on talk, SSRN. Yeah, talking about how some money managers and their transactions that they made either immediately before or immediately after earnings releases for the holdings that they had. And they were and he was able to twist this into why investing in an ETF or an index fund may be the wrong way to go. Yeah, again, it was something to get clicks, but even even one of the stats quoted in the article talked about how, you know, the top 20% of these funds that they had identified uh, outperformed the bottom by uh, 1.27%. To clarify, what, what it actually said in the academic piece was that the top quintile was greater than the bottom quintile by that amount over the following 12 months after these trades were made. So it doesn't mean like overall or every year on average or that the same funds were the top quintile. Like the top quintile is always changing. That's true. It's the same yeah. information that you talk about when you read the S&P studies, the SPIVA studies that look at the percentage of funds outperforming index over one, three, five, ten 10-year, 15-year now time horizons. There are, and there have been, I think that the latest one had 15-year data and 15% of large cap managers had outperformed over the prior 15 years. That doesn't mean that like they're the same ones every single year. Right. And, and there really isn't any repeatability in terms of the same winners continuing to win. And so to say that you could identify who is going to be in that 10 or 15% year after year is just ridiculous. It's it's nonsense. It's also a waste of time uh, yeah. in, in what you're trying to do. Right. So they broke down this, these trades that these fund managers did into basically two buckets. They were either because of inflows or outflows into the mutual fund or uh, because, you know, presumably they, they had 
feelings about the stock. They liked it or they disliked it. So, so buy, the, sell, just more natural versus uh, artificial, like uh, forced upon them. So the first bucket really is because of the day-to-day management of the fund. There's money going out or there's new money coming in. Right. And I think part of the problem is, before we turn the mics on, you had said, well, if they're really concerned about that, why don't they just close the fund right. to new money? Like they don't, they don't have to take people's money. Uh, for these mutual funds, like if they, and part of the the whole gist of the article was saying that these these fund managers would just be better off if the investors would leave them alone, which is yeah. which is super cranky. It's like it may be <laughs> it may be right to an extent, but also like if no one gives them money anymore, then their fund will will just like cease to exist because it it won't have assets. Like they need people to give them money. That's that's their business. So they're complaining about like like can you imagine walking into like a store, like like a, a retail store and having them be like, oh, these guys, they're in here buying our these stuff customers, again. Like, what are they doing? Yeah, get we out. We don't want customers like, oh, yeah. get out of our store. Like that, that's basically the tone they're taking with this. Well, what's also interesting and, and something we could, we could probably do two or three podcast episodes on is how the mutual fund industry and to a certain extent, the ETFs uh, now, when there's less interest in a fund or less assets in a fund, they simply just close the fund or they'll roll it up into another fund in the same vein or in the same family. And so a lot of those historical poor returns just get erased. Yeah, that that is something that happens, especially with uh, mutual funds, but but ETFs close too, for sure. Right. Like you're saying, uh, it's it's just really tough for me to buy that that these managers would be like better off without inflows or outflows. Obviously, sometimes that is going to force their hand, especially on outflows, because, and we've seen a real-world example of this, where a client of ours had a mutual fund that they've owned now for many uh, years. About 20 years almost, something like that. Yeah, back since before the financial crisis. So, it, yeah, I mean, approaching uh, over a decade for sure. Right. Anyway, so they've, they've owned this fund, and it has just faced nothing but outflows since they bought it. And part of that is due to financial crisis. Part of it is due to more people leaving the active mutual fund space altogether and buying things like ETFs and index funds because they're cheaper and more efficient in many cases. These particular folks had these fund shares in a taxable account. So Mm -hmm. every single year they had massive capital gains that were adding to their cost basis. So, so the managers of this fund would be a good example of that, where they've been they've been managing a shrinking pile of assets now for over a decade. I'm I'm sure that has hampered some of the transactions that they've wanted to make, and maybe they've had to sell some stocks that they didn't want to, which meant unloading some big capital gains, which then they passed along on to, to the, the shareholders. remaining shareholders. Yeah. So, structural issue that mutual funds have when compared to ETFs. ETFs don't really have that issue. Maybe maybe that's something that should be extended to mutual funds too. I don't know. I'm I'm not sure why ETFs get it and not not uh, mutual funds. But to this article's point about why these mutual funds would be better off if people just left them alone. When you manage a mutual fund, obviously first and foremost, your your duty that everybody thinks of is that you're going to buy and sell stocks that you have views on and that you're aiming to outperform some kind of a benchmark. But Secondarily, you you can't take on that position and then claim ignorance to the fact that you're going to also have to manage inflows and outflows. Like that is 
That's part of the job. I feel like it's like turning the lights on every morning. That's equally as important as being skilled at picking stocks is being skilled at managing the inflows and outflows and taking this into account. Like, you know that there are going to be inflows and outflows. Figure it out. Like, you can't say the, oh, like I would have performed except for those pesky outflows. It's like Scooby-Doo at the end of the episode. Yeah. Like, would have been fine except for those meddling kids. Like, yeah, come rut on. Row. This was... I think pretty easy pickings for us in terms of being able to poke holes in a lot of this stuff. Yeah, it's it's tough. I and I, I get where they're coming from with some of it, but I didn't. I really didn't care for the way that it was presented, like as if it was a gotcha moment for like ETF or index fund investors, like they had made some kind of a mistake. Right. Because a lot of this has to do with mutual fund structure and how it sometimes works against otherwise skilled managers. But if the structure is the problem, then like so what like are you paying does it make me feel better that i paid for skilled underperformance because of the structure like i don't care right i don't care if if there was a skilled manager who only underperformed because of because of inflows and outflows that like forced his or her hand like still underperformance i don't i don't really care and so to pay more for that moving forward into the future i don't think it makes a lot of sense and that is why more people are are moving into things like etfs and index funds so you see hit pieces like this from defenders of the other side occasionally and and i think that this one was particularly uh poorly put together i think what really kind of stung me was right at the very end of the article where uh the author said exchange traded funds are very cheap they're uh so it makes it easy for the investors to trade them and they can move in and out that they it, it encourages joe public to trade in and out of these things mm-hmm I have a problem with that. They're definitely easier to trade than mutual funds, but I'm not sure that that makes them like bad. It, I don't think it's. I don't think they're really. I, I I don't know. It's a philosophical thing for me in terms of hey, you're going to put money into a basket of stocks. There's going to be some underperformers, some overperformers, but if you're buying into an index or a class, this is what you should expect with this. So. To use that as a trading vehicle, I just don't think that's really the best one out there. A mutual fund would be worse. Right. Because you've got a lot more costs and expenses packed into these things. So trading in and out of mutual funds, never a good idea. Trading in and out of ETFs, probably not a good idea. No. We wouldn't <laughs> condone it. Never a good idea either. You're, yeah. So if you're buying an ETF or an index fund because it's cheaper than its uh, closest counterpart in the mutual fund family. Maybe you're saving like a percent on the expense ratio, but then you're going to trade the ETF or mutual fund, add in your trading cost and whatever tax implications there are too. And you've just eroded the 100 basis points you might've been saving by using something cheaper. So there is no there is no benefit anymore. Yeah. So I, I think that it's never a good idea to be buying those to trade uh, to trade either, because as long as you're aware that you're completely eroding all of the benefits of doing of owning an ETF by trading them actively on a daily or weekly basis, then sure knock yourself out. Uh, all else equal, I agree. I'd rather see people trading cheaper things than more expensive things. But either way, I think you're an idiot if that's what you're doing. <laughs> Tom Maluli is an investment advisor representative with Maluli Asset Management. All opinions expressed by Tom and his podcast guests 
are solely their own opinions and do not necessarily reflect the opinions of Maluli Asset Management. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. Clients of Maluli Asset Management may maintain positions in securities discussed in this podcast. Pretty good article from uh, Christine Benz at Morningstar, friend of the firm. We should say that she was a previous guest on Tim's podcast, Living With Money. Great, great episode to go check out. Uh, Lots of of wisdom packed into that episode. And so her article that was in Morningstar a couple of days back, uh, the headline was, hey, pre-retirees, are you taking too much risk? I thought this really covered... A lot of things that we cover here in the in the conference room. This is interesting because, and we see both sides of this conversation, but this is, I think, the the one that you see less. Uh, we we see a lot of people in this pre-retirement or just entering retirement phase of their lives, and they're more they're more concerned with like taking any risk at all, and right. and they don't think they can afford anything. No risk, like I can't afford risk is thing is something that we hear all of the time. Conversely, Christine is discussing people here who are taking way too much risk, and, and it may just be something that they've grown accustomed to over the course of their career. She, t- she talks at, uh, about it in terms of they had one job for the longest time in terms of their investment assets. It was the accumulation phase. Right. Just save, 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 right? Right. And so getting people to dial back or or recognize that they no longer have to bear that amount of risk as they enter a different phase with their money is not always easy. It's not always an easy sell to make. So talk a little bit about comparing a 100% stock portfolio versus a 60-40 or 70-30 portfolio over a retired person's cycle, 20 or 30 years? Yeah, it's 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 interesting, and I've seen it displayed this way before. Uh, like if you took two hypothetical portfolios and showed returns over the last 20 years, let's say, one that's 100% stocks and one that's 60-40 stocks and bonds. All right, uh, over just thinking without seeing any numbers or any graphs or anything, the, my first thought is the 100% stock portfolio is going to do great. Yeah. I mean, they're both going to do great over a 20-year period. You're going to make a lot plenty of money. money. And especially over the last 20-year period, I mean, even that that included two bear markets still looks still looks pretty good. Without any, any specific numbers, though, you, you look over a period of time and stretched over a long enough period, like 10, 20, 30 years, periods of time that retirees even have in front of them, sure. um, which is interesting to discuss too, because a lot of times people have this opinion that they don't have time anymore, which ties into their inability to take risk or whatever. But to show the returns of something over that period of time, they're both going to grow. But in most cases, and you know, historically right now, the 100% stock portfolio has done better. And so all else equal, you, you ask somebody which one they would have wanted over the last 20 years, let's say, and most people are going to say, I'd want the 100% stock portfolio. Sure. Right. Higher returns. I'm going all in. Yep. So to layer on a, a second piece to this exercise, though, you take the same exact portfolios, 100% stocks, 60-40 stocks and bonds over the last 20 years, and you add in uh, something like a 4% withdrawal rate each year on this this pile of money that that has been compounding. And it's interesting to see that a lot of times the more conservative portfolio in this case is going to look better because it's not strictly growth that we're looking at anymore. It is growth in the context of also withdrawing 4% a year or whatever the numbers are. And you can work this with a host of different variables, but 
The point being, when you show it that way, most people want the more conservative portfolio. And it just speaks to the idea that when you're withdrawing on your assets, the highest possible growth rate is not necessarily what is going to mean the best probability of success for you not running out of money. Before we turn the mic on, I was talking about how if you were to not look at this over 20 or 30 years, but instead zoom in on the graph, see the drawdowns that a 100% portfolio would have, yeah. it's going to make people second guess their decisions. Right. And they're going to wonder, hey, we've had two years of negative returns plus withdrawals. Right. Yeah. Like imagine uh, a 40% drawdown that, that, lapses over two years. So over a two-year span, you're in different phases of, of what ultimately ends up being a 40% drawdown, which is certainly possible in a 100% stock portfolio. That's just a bear market, basically. It's not anything special. Right. These things occur. And in so, three years of withdrawals. Right. So your portfolio yeah. is 60% of what it was. And let's say it's a million-dollar portfolio, and you also withdrew 4% each year. Maybe you withdrew something in the realm of another sixty dollars to $80,000 over, over that time frame. Man, like you your portfolio is now cut in half. Half. Right? Yeah. Between withdrawals and market action. Are you going to be able to feel okay about that? Or is, I mean, I feel like that's going to have to start creeping into your decisions in terms of how, how you're spending this money. And then because you psychologically wanted to stay in something that was higher growth because you were used to it or you feared that there wouldn't be enough otherwise, you've then put yourself in that place where, I mean, you could at least be a little bit better off if you if you had a portion of your assets in something that holds up when the market doesn't do well, like high quality bonds or treasuries. In the article, Christine uh, actually quoted uh, Bill Bernstein, who wrote Four Pillars of Investing and a couple of other Many books. Many other good ones. Yeah. yeah. One of his famous lines is, "When you've won the game, quit playing." She goes on to say, basically, thanks to the equity market, uh, many pre-retirees and retirees have effectively won the game. Having amassed the assets they need for a comfortable retirement, they should transition at least a portion of their portfolios into safer things. My, my question is, and this really gets down to what a planner or an advisor does for a client, is how does, a, how does someone, an individual, know that they've amassed everything that they need? Right. And again, b before we had this discussion here, we were, we were talking about that point and, and you were saying that you feel like a lot of people stay in portfolios that look that way because just that deep seated fear that I think all of us have to some degree of, of not believing that there will ever be enough. Right. I think we all innately feel that way all the time. Like, like no matter what we're talking about, whether it's money or opportunity or, or whatever it may be, just that there's never enough, that, that the goalposts are just a little bit further, even if we've reached a goal that we had already set out for ourselves. There, there has to be something more. There's, there's a little bit more. Like we're, we're never satisfied. And you know, part of that is good because it's what gets us up and motivates us to continue working hard and do things with our life. But when it's causing you anxiety that then is, is making you maybe even subconsciously do things with your investments that you don't need to, bearing risk that you don't need to bear, like unhealthy. Yeah, it's, it, it isn't healthy. And so it's part of the question that we answer for people when they come to the table with us is, here's here's where I'm at. I've been accumulating for my whole life. Can I retire? If so, what will that look like? And we can help apply some context to the situation as one of Christine's recommendations was to uh, factor in your planned spending. 
when, when you're trying to figure out how much can, how much can you shift to something safer? You know, like what, what do you, you start, what are you going to need on a, on a year to year basis to continue living your life right now? Right. That's, that's a good place to start. And then maybe, maybe you start by shifting a handful. If you want to think of it just in years of expenses, move X years of yeah. expenses Two years, to something Three safe. years, yeah. yeah. Right. So Christine shared some numbers. You and I know it, but I think it's worth sharing uh, on the podcast. In rolling 10-year periods since 1936, stocks have generated a positive return 97% of the time. You want to explain what a rolling 10-year period is? At any point in time, looking back, like from today, 10, 10 years prior back to 2009. Right. Uh, or it could have been last year looking back to 2008. Right. Uh, or it could be into the in, into the future looking to 2029 from today or right. wherever you want to draw the line. So today. on a rolling 10-year period going all the way back to 1936, stocks have generated a positive return 97% of the time. The problem is when you start to zoom in on that. Positive it, return means a lot of different things too. Positive return could be a fraction of 1%. Right. Nonetheless, good foundational information to build a portfolio off of. Uh, if we're having the opposite conversation as this, which is this this person, this hypothetical person, wants to remain in their 100% stock portfolio, there's also a lot of people who get to retirement and believe that they're going to flip a switch and stop taking all risk. Yeah, That is not going to work either because most people, while they may be able to afford dialing back uh, on the risk once they approach retirement, they can certainly not afford no growth in retirement. Like, like you need to just be independently wealthy. Like, I have enough money to put my money into CDs at the bank and just hang out for the rest of my life. Hey, if you're there, great. Yeah. We don't talk to a lot of people that are there. But what if you uh, were thinking about flipping that switch from risk investments to non-risk investments at the end of 2008 or at any time in 2009? Right. And so a more timely way to approach that could be to, you know, hope and hopefully... You're not, uh, this is a decision that's being driven by you not wanting to work as much anymore. Maybe you're dialing it back or, or just retiring fully and you're not going to work anymore. But you make these decisions as your life dictates and not as a reaction to uh, a market event. Yeah. Like, like if you're going to dial back risk, it should be because you're transitioning into a part of your life where you're going to need to begin relying upon your assets to some degree. And, and you do that commensurately with you know, the changes that are that are happening to you, not, oh, wow, stocks are down 20%. I guess I should get less I guess aggressive. I should, yeah, I guess I should make a change now. And I'm glad you brought that up because that is a conversation that we have, unfortunately, too often with people where they'll start out the conversation by, hey, the market's down 20%. I guess I should start getting defensive. No. Nope. A lot of times we're going to have conversations with our clients and we'll say, okay, you're retiring now, or you know, now you're age 70 and you're gonna start taking distributions from your pension or retirement or whatever. Okay, let's now talk about how we should change your asset allocation. It's not driven by what's happening in the market. A lot of times what we tell clients is, you need to tell us what's going on in your life that is going to dictate the changes that we may consider for you. It's not going to be because of what's happening in the market, because we need the market to hit our goals right. and, on, and, on the growth end. And we're also building plans that take into account the fact that, that markets do decline 
and on a pretty regular basis. So we're not we're not building any plans that are contingent upon sidestepping the next bear market because right. if we had to build plans that were contingent upon that, I don't think I would be in this line of work because it wouldn't yeah. be possible. Yeah. So n- nobody's nobody's financial plan that we've built here is uh, okay. We're going to withdraw X per year. And you've accumulated this. We're going to have this much in stocks and bonds. And oh, by the way, we're going to forecast the next bear market and you're going to sidestep it entirely. Yeah. No. It just doesn't work that it's, way. It's building something that's durable enough to withstand those, throw off the money that you need, also have probably a portion of it growing for the long term, which means we're going to experience ups and, ups and downs in the market. It, it would be a lot easier for us to uh, sell something different because people in our line of work will. They'll tell you, we're going to take, we'll take risk when stocks are up and we'll just uh you know get out of the way when stocks are down or they'll sell you a product that purports to uh eliminate market risk and just eliminate your money yeah <laughs> or gives you bond like bond like returns for a very high price yeah well that's going to wrap up episode number 252 thanks for tuning in and we will catch up with you on the next episode